If you've got your copy of God's Word this morning, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22. We're going to be reading verses 16 down to the end of the chapter in verse 31. Well, I want to thank uh, Jimmy Davis last week for filling in and uh, preaching. Uh, We called home and asked... Uh, the kids, how everything went, uh, which is a funny conversation every week uh, because we also ask them that every Sunday after Daddy preaches and uh, they usually say too long. Uh, But with Mr. Jimmy, they said uh, he drew a picture and there was a man and uh, and he talked to Caleb from the pulpit. They were excited. Uh, So anyway, thank you for thank you for uh, for handling the word and encouraging uh, our congregation to be faithful I also want to thank our congregation. Uh, My parents were able to end up coming into town uh, to watch our kids for the majority of the week, but I know a handful of ladies uh, and their families stepped up to watch kids, and we had a whole list of people on call, and Kelly and I just feel extremely thankful and loved uh, by our church family uh, for doing that while we were away. Let's read Exodus uh, 20. 2 verses 16 through 31 this morning. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them... And they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people." You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beast in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. What we've seen walking through the book of Exodus is God save His people Israel. We've seen Him sustain them in the wilderness 
And we've seen him enter into a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, calling them to obey him and live with him as their king. After the Ten Commandments, which are famous, this book of the covenant or book of the law in Exodus 20 through 23 gives instructions to Israel on what they are and are not to do, how to live life together as a holy, distinct people. A lot of times, as we've walked through these in the last month or so, these laws at first seem irrelevant to us, modern readers. But what these laws do is they reveal to us God's unchanging character. And they're filled to the brim with principles of justice that are to lead Israel to be different from the nations around them. This morning we read off these laws that talk about seduction and sorcery and bestiality and widows and the fatherless and sojourners and lending and all of these topics. And it's kind of difficult to categorize them in any clear way. So what I've attempted to do in trying to cover these verses and explain and apply them is to build an acronym to summarize these laws. Many of us know the famous Lord's Prayer. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And that famous word, hallow, means to honor as holy. So what I've done is I've used hallow, H-A-L-L-O-W, and these verses to try to summarize and give bite-sized truths that explain to us how God expects His people to be holy or to hallow His name. So the first of those six is found in verses 16 and 17, and that's that God expects His people to honor the marriage bed. Honor the marriage bed. Moses writes here that there's a scenario where a man is seducing a young woman. This doesn't mean that he's forcing himself on her. That's dealt with in other places in the law. But instead, this is a consensual, unholy act of intimacy that happens outside of God's design for sexuality. Both the man and the woman are responsible for these actions and both of them will face consequences. For the woman, she will either marry this man or will have a very difficult time finding another husband because of the shame associated with this sinful action. For the man... He will either pay the bride price to marry this woman or if her father refuses to allow his daughter to marry this man, he must pay the bride price anyway without getting a bride. What these laws do in verses 16 and 17 is they give costly consequences for living outside of God's Design, but they also provide divine incentives to honor the marriage bed and keep it holy. 
Sexual temptation has been a struggle for mankind ever since Genesis chapter 3 when mankind rebelled against God. And we are all, as fallen sinners, prone to believe the lie that intimacy separated from the marriage covenant is good for us. But what sexual intimacy outside of marriage produces instead is guilt, shame, distrust, body image issues, identity issues, diseases, unplanned pregnancies, single mothers, fatherless children, and broken family units. Pain and chaos ensue when God's good gift of sexual intimacy is practiced outside of God's design. And the sad thing today is that these things are not only happening, but they are normalized. They are even celebrated. In our culture, you are considered crazy if you save yourself for marriage. In our culture, you're considered judgmental if you don't affirm the world's standards for sexuality, which are, there are no standards, do what you want. Sin that in the Bible and most of history brought rightful shame and guilt before God and others is celebrated by our world today. And what's worse, many professing believers are falling in line with the world, either living in unrepentant sexual sin or affirming and celebrating that it's okay in the name of a general, vague, nebulous love that they are showing to those who are living outside of God's design. Friends, I know that the church historically has stood for a biblical sexual ethic, and oftentimes have made that alone the standard of holiness and righteousness. But in trying to overcorrect, in trying to be relevant, in trying to not be preachy, we must not stop affirming what the Bible teaches, that God has always expected His people to be distinct from the world. We wonder today why God is not working and moving in our churches. Is it possible that He's not? Because those who profess to follow Him and love Him, those who show up to churches in our community on Sunday mornings, those who sing songs and write tithe checks, are living lives marked by sexual unholiness by private sin, and are letting the world dictate how they think about these things? Is it possible that God is not working and moving 
because there is a big black eye that he sees that maybe no one else does. He demands his people honor the marriage bed. That's the first of these principles or these truths. That's the H in the acronym HALO, honor the marriage bed. But the verses go on. In verses 18 through 20, they show us the second thing, that God expects that we will be accountable, accountable to Him. God gives three capital crimes, sorcery, bestiality, and sacrifices to idols. Every one of those has to do with acts of worship that are so evil in God's eyes that He says there will be no forgiveness for these things. They will deserve death. Sorcery is seeking to figure out the future apart from God's revealed Word, specifically attempting to do so by trying to tap into the demonic. Bestiality is seeking intimacy with animals and acts that was associated with pagan worship in the ancient Near East. These unspeakable acts cut so hard against God's design that He says that there's no redemption available for them in the Old Covenant. Sacrificing Animals and sacrifices to false gods is an act of worshiping and trusting something that God made or something that you are imagining is real instead of sacrificing your life and worshiping the true God. And God says for all of these, not go offer a sacrifice. He says if you do these sins, you die. These capital crimes remind us that God calls Israel here and in other places to enforce the death penalty for certain sins. You might ask, how does that apply to us today? Well, it's important for us to remember that Israel was different than us today. Israel was a theocracy. They weren't a democracy or a republic or a monarchy. They were a theocracy, meaning God was their king. God called the shots. God's law was their constitution. They were not only a group of people who had distinct religious beliefs, but they were also a kingdom, a state, if you will. The state could enforce the death penalty with the permission of God's king and God's word in much the same way today that states, nation states, can as well. But the church, the new covenant people of God, are not a theocracy. So how does this idea that God holds people accountable with the death penalty apply to a group of people who are not physical descendants of Abraham, but instead are empowered and changed and born again by the Spirit of God. You read through the New Testament, there's never a time where God commands His new covenant people to kill someone for sin. But what He does say and give instruction about is that they are to live accountable relationships together. 
He even says that when those who are living in accountable relationships in the local church go so far off the rails that they stop living like a believer, he gives them categories for things like church discipline, even something like excommunication, which means saying to someone, you can't be a part of our church anymore. Now sadly, today, many of us develop our theology and our knowledge of the Bible from coffee cups and Facebook memes instead of actually reading the Scriptures. And when that's the case, we only read and re-quote positive, encouraging verses, usually ripped out of context. And when that's the case, we don't have categories with what's going on in the Bible for things like this because we're not familiar with the Scripture. But King Jesus, while on earth, and His apostles who wrote what we call the New Testament, assume and actually explicitly command that believers will be a part of a church body and will have meaningful accountability in their lives. There was no category of Christian in the New Testament where you just popped in and out when you felt like it. There's not a category for that. There's a category today because we have a shallow faith and we live with a cultural Christianity where I can come and go as I please and never really be rooted and committed. There's lots of that today. And we use that in the name of I'm free in Christ. I'm led by the Spirit. If you were led by the Spirit, you'd read the Bible, do what it says. Back to my point. The Bible assumes and explicitly commands that believers will be a part of a church body and will have meaningful accountability. And it even says that if a professing believer who claims to represent King Jesus is living their life in public, unrepentant sin, and they refuse to turn from that sin after brothers and sisters have come to them and have lovingly reached out to them and reminded them that Jesus is better and reminded them that they're representing the King and reminded them of what God's Word says. If they still refuse to repent of that sin, then the Bible, not Nick, the Bible, the New Testament tells the church to no longer allow them to be a member Because you can no longer affirm that their profession of faith is real based on their life, based on their unrepentance. Now all of that assumes that someone who professes to be a believer has been born again and the Spirit of God dwells inside of them and their heart's been changed. All that assumes that the Christian life is a transformed life. Not just make a decision, but you actually become a disciple. Not just pray a prayer, but your life is actually transformed. The biblical definition of conversion. So when a a church does that, when they take that step, the church is saying, we have no confidence that you're truly saved because your life doesn't match what you say you believe. Now these capital crimes in Old Testament Israel reminded the Israelites that there was a point of no return with a holy God where a holy God would deal with you even then. And the New Covenant Church has its own version 
of this through the practice of church discipline. There's one significant difference though. In church discipline, the hope and the purpose of it is always to restore. It's always with the hope that this drastic act will lead the individual to turn from and repent of their sin and be restored to the fellowship of God's people. What these practices in the Old and New Testaments teach us is that God expects His people will be accountable to Him and to other people. And what that means is this. One mark of a holy, biblical, spirit-led Christian life is inviting meaningful accountability into your life through the local church. You need people in the church who can watch your blind spots, who know where you're weak and vulnerable, and who are committed to watching over your soul. And they need you to do that for them as well. That's what the church is for. There is no category in the Bible, Old or New Testament, for being a lone ranger and just making up your rules about how to follow and obey God. It's not there. That's the second truth in these verses that these laws about capital crime teaches us. We're not only to honor the marriage bed, but to be accountable to God and to His people. The third truth, the L, H-A-L, is in verses 21 through 27, God calls His people to lean into the vulnerable. Lean into the vulnerable. In these verses, God shows that He cares for sojourners, widows, the fatherless, and the poor. I label these people vulnerable or or needy. Being far from home, having lost your spouse and your support system, being raised as an orphan without parental care and struggling to survive, all of these things happen in a fallen world. And many situations can cause these kind of vulnerable spots. Sometimes these things happen because of our actions, and oftentimes they happen outside of our control. But nevertheless, God commands His people Israel to not take advantage of, to not ignore, and to not neglect those who are in these kinds of spots. In fact, God feels so passionate about it that He says that if you do, that He'll kill you with a sword and make your wife a widow and your children fatherless. That's in your Bible. That's sharp. God cares about how we treat the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. He says that if someone who's poor borrows something from you and you take something as collateral, that you can't take things from them for collateral that they need to live. You can't think to yourself, you know what, them being cold at night without their cloak, that'll remind them and motivate them to pay me back. 
Some of us might think that. God says, don't think that. Because God is merciful and compassionate and holy. He commands His people to be as well. Israel is called to lean into the needs of the vulnerable. They're called to move towards the messy situation. Not away from, not away from it. How often when we see someone whose life is a mess, whether it's a hard situation outside of their control or whether it's their own doing, do we just kind of turn away and say, I'm not, I'm not touching that. I'm not messing, I don't have time for that. God says move towards the messy situation. Lean in to the vulnerable. Help the transient who's far from home, the widow who's struggling, the kid without a dad. Because God is just and merciful and we are called to be as well. So if you have more money than you need, God expects that you will generously help others. If you know a fatherless young man, God wants you to step into their life and be a spiritual father and teach them how to be a man. If you have know-how and are able-bodied, you could be an answered prayer to a widow in need. We also need wisdom and biblical values in thinking about transients away from home. What we often call today... Immigrants. I fear that in our principled devotion to protecting our borders, which is a good and wise and needed thing to do, that we can easily fall into the trap of sounding like a bunch of angry American Christians who just want to keep the evil foreigners out. Now obviously, defending your nation is important. You must have standards to enter into your country. I'm not denying that. I'm just trying to remind us that we're called to be a missionary people. And the mission field oftentimes in our country is begging to come to us. I think they need to do it the right way. And I'm not trying to make a political statement here, just to remind us that we're called to be disciple-making Christians first and foremost, because our true and eternal citizenship is in heaven. That means that we should be a people in our local community, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our church, who are leaning into the needs of the vulnerable. The vulnerable in this world should find a safe haven of support and love and justice when they encounter a holy Christian whose life is hallowing God's name. God wants us to lean into the vulnerable. The fourth thing that we can do in this text to hallow God's name is be loyal to leadership. Be loyal to leadership. Verse 28 says not to revile God or to curse a ruler of His people. This goes back to the first command of not having any other gods and the fifth command of honoring 
your parents, or honoring authority. God's designed this world, He's designed His creation with authority structures in place that we are called to submit to. He's called us to honor governing authorities in our life. It begins with God, who we're to honor and obey first and foremost above all other authority in our life, but it extends beyond that. In Israel, that might be honoring the prophets like Moses or the priests like the tribe of the Levites. Eventually, that would mean honoring the kings from the tribe of Judah. Some would be good and some would be bad. But God, who is sovereign, puts everyone in leadership where they are for a reason. And part of our obedience to God is responding rightly to the leadership and authority in your life. Part of the life of a holy, hallowed believer should involve being teachable and loyal to the leadership God has placed in your life. That includes in your home, in your marriage, with your parents. It includes in your workplace, in your local and national government. It even includes in your church. We're to show honor to authority instead of constantly trying to buck the system, make our own rules, and be independent of all authority. Is not the root of all our sin trying to go our own way? This isn't a call to blind submission, because there are obviously times to not follow ungodly, unwise leadership. But that act of rebellion against leadership should be the exception, not the rule for our lives. Because we are called to be holy by being loyal and honoring the leadership God's placed in our life. Next, in verses 29 and 30, we see that we are to offer ourselves to God. Offer ourselves to God. God demands that Israel will offer the first fruits of their harvest as well as their firstborn sons and animals to God. Why? Remember what happened in, earlier in Exodus. When Israel came out of Egypt, their firstborn sons were spared from God's judgment because the blood of the Passover lamb had been shed in their place. And then after this, God told Israel that each family's firstborn sons and animals were to be dedicated to Him. God wanted to remind Israel that He's the one who gave them life and salvation. He wants this truth to be a part of their identity, so they're called to give of themselves, to give of their abundance, to even give of their family to the Lord who's provided them with all that they have in the first place. The principle underneath this is that Israel was to give themselves to God. This giving of the harvest was essentially giving their money to God. The giving of their firstborn was saying, My family and all that I have is yours. 
These kinds of practices, these kinds of offerings to God pave the way towards the new covenant where the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12 that believers are to give themselves to God as living sacrifices. He says, don't offer me a sacrifice. You be the sacrifice by giving me all that you are. That sounds like more than giving a couple of hours of your attention one day a week to God, doesn't it? It sounds like keeping 99% of what you have for you and then throwing God some leftovers is not what being a living sacrifice means. Because of all that God has done for Israel... And because of how much more He has done for His new covenant church through His Son, Jesus, God expects that we will be living sacrifices, giving all that we are to Him, fully devoted to Him, doing all for His kingdom and His glory. That sounds radical. But that's just normal Christianity. Normal Christianity that cannot be stopped by the world. Offering yourself fully to God is a part of hallowing God's name. And the last, the W of hallow, is God expects His people to be holy and hallowed. He calls them to wean off of the world. Wean off the world. Verse 31. This last verse is kind of an odd one. God essentially says, don't eat roadkill. And you might be thinking, I struggle with lots of commands, but that is one that I can keep. He says, don't eat flesh torn by beasts. Instead, throw it out to the dogs. Why? What's the reason? You are to be consecrated to me, he says in verse 31. For Israel to dwell with God, they have to be holy, but they also have to be ceremonially clean. There were certain things that you could eat or touch that would make you ceremonially unclean and would keep you from being able to live among God's people and draw near to God. Some of these unclean infractions make perfect sense to us, and some of them honestly are kind of random. But the point God is making in all of these laws about being clean and unclean is that His people are to be distinct. They are not to follow the world's customs, but they are to follow His customs and His laws because they are His people. They are not to be like the nations. They are not to dress like or eat like or act like the nations around them. They should be distinct and holy and ceremonially clean. God wants Israel to be weaned off the world by being different from the world. Because they were not going to be able to be a light to the nations. They were not going to be able to be a kingdom of priests if they were just like the unholy nations around them. And the same is true for God's new covenant people, the church today. To put it simply, the church cannot be the true church and look like the world. 
the problem, the temptation that churches face today is that they love success. They love approval in the community. And we're oftentimes bowing down to the idol of success and willing to compromise God's Word and what God calls us to do in order to appear successful. The temptation the church faces today is that we are tempted to try to be like the world in order to attract the world. In our efforts to win the lost, we oftentimes are tempted to do things to make the lost feel more comfortable. In our effort to seem relatable and relevant, we often live lives and share the exact same values and do the exact same actions that people around us who don't love Jesus do. We're told that to get the world to come to our church services, you need to have a rock band or put on a good show or be a life coach instead of a preacher. From a ministry perspective, it's very important for us to realize this principle. You keep people with what you win them with. If you win people to your church by meeting their felt needs and their preferences, then they will only stay as long as those felt needs and preferences are met. But if you win them with the Word of God, if you win them with the Gospel that never changes if you win them with your community of faith that lives together, committed to God and one another, then they will stay because your standards are not changing. From a personal perspective, we need to remember that God has called us individually to be holy and distinct. We are called to be salt and light. When you walk into the room, people should sit up a little straighter. Your workplace should have higher standards because you're there. You might work in a dark place. You be the light. Don't compromise. Don't give in. Don't fit in. Be different. Be distinct. Be a Christian. Be a light. Be salt. If your neighbors and co-workers don't know that you're a Christian, if they don't notice how you're different, if they don't know that you love Jesus, then something is not right. God calls us to be weaned off the world because we're satisfied in Christ. And when our lives are marked by these realities, we will hallow His name. Honor the marriage bed. Be accountable to God and other believers. Lean into the needs of the vulnerable. Be loyal to leadership. Offer yourself to God. Wean yourself off the world. Those are the principles underneath these foreign, ancient laws. Those are the marks of a holy life that hallows God's name. And not one of us can do it on our own. That's why Jesus matters. Jesus alone was perfectly sexually pure. 
Jesus alone was so holy that He needed no accountability in His life. Jesus alone could perfectly be just and merciful in dealing with the vulnerable. Jesus alone was perfectly loyal to the leadership of His Father, even honorable to the leadership of the world. Jesus alone gave all of Himself to God, not just on the cross in dying, but during His whole life of obedience. Jesus alone did not need to be weaned off the world because He was never attracted by or influenced by the world. Hebrews 2.18 tells us that because Jesus has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15 says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is able in every respect to sympathize with us. Why? Because He has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus faced the temptations that you and I face to not hallow God's name with His life. And He perfectly obeyed God. And then He laid His life down to pay for our lack of hallowing God's name. To pay for our lust and sexual sin, to pay for our independence that avoids accountability, to pay for our hard-heartedness towards the vulnerable and needy, to pay for our rebellion against authority, to pay for our giving ourselves to the world instead of God. Jesus overcomes the temptation and then He pays the penalty for our giving into the temptation. He turns away God's righteous judgment from His fallen people, and then He makes a way for us to live lives at peace with God and be forgiven. But He doesn't just forgive us. He does that, praise God. But He also empowers us to be transformed from the inside out to live for Him. He gives us Blind eyes transformed into seeing spiritual eyes. He changes our hard hearts to be soft hearts that beat for the glory of God. He raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life. He gives us new hearts, new desires, new affections so that we can live new, transformed, holy lives. We can be holy. We can have Hallow God's name because Jesus did it first. And on the cross, He paid for our penalty, but He also empowered our righteousness. And what that means is, is that when we fail, when we don't hallow God's name, when we give in to those doubts and temptations, when we're struggling which is the normal battle believers face, we can look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and rest in Him. But we don't just look and rest. We plead with God to empower us to say no to sin because of what Jesus has done. We rest from our work 
but we plead with God to empower us to work for Him. Not to save ourselves, but because we are saved. If you are here this morning and you recognize that you are not and have never hallowed God's name in your life, and you see your need before God for forgiveness and salvation, Jesus is the answer, not law-keeping. You can't make yourself holy. You can't do enough good works. You can't meet God's standard. None of us can, but Jesus did. And the Bible says to believe in and rest in and trust in and submit to Him as Savior and as King. If that's your need this morning, salvation is offered. But you must repent and believe the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you know Him, and you're confident that He's saved you and that He's real to you, and yet you recognize like I do that there are many areas in your life where you don't hallow God's name, then I pray to you, I pray for you, that you'll go to Him now that you'll acknowledge your sin, that you'll repent of it. Not just repenting with words, repenting with action. That you'll remember the hope of the gospel. You'll remember Christ, our salvation. And you'll pray for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be different, to be distinct. Friends, we are called to hallow God's name. And we can only do that because Jesus did it for us and because Jesus empowers us to do it today. Let's look to Him with faith and let's ask Him to make us holy. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your grace and Your mercy this morning. I thank You for the work that You've done in so many people's lives in the past. And God, I pray this morning as we close that You will continue to work in our lives. God, help us not to seek after the wrong things in this life. Help us, Lord, to desire You. Give us affections. Give us hearts for You. God, give us the gift of repentance. Help us to hallow Your name. Help us to see You as holy and righteous. God, help us to know that Your love, Your mercy, and Your grace is a holy love and mercy and grace. God, help us to cling to the cross. Help us to remember what Christ has done. And help us and empower us to say no to sin. God, we pray that as we sing this song, as we close right now, that You will help us to do business with You and that you'll empower us even now to live this life, with our, this week with our gaze fixed on you. God, you are good and holy. Be with us now as we respond. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.